You turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, Daryl would be happy to get one to you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep that one. So you turn to 1 Corinthians 6. This morning, I'd like to begin by reading you a poem, a poem entitled Invictus. Uh, the word Invictus is Latin for unconquered. This poem expresses the author's fundamental attitude toward life. I think as we get to the end, you'll, you'll hear his, his basic outlook. Out of the light that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Does that sound familiar? It's an attitude toward life. It's certainly the, the dominant attitude in, in our culture. Uh, but this poem was not written to describe 21st century society. It was written in 1875 by an Englishman named William Ernest Henley. But not much has changed in the last 150 years, has it? And we really shouldn't expect it to. What Henley describes in this poem is just the basic attitude of sin. I can be my own master. I don't need God to tell me what to do. And this was true of Adam and Eve at the fall, right, as they chose the, the damning illusion of self-rule over submission to the loving rule of God. It's certainly the attitude of human nature now and it's been true at every moment in between, including in the first century in Corinth. It's the attitude that we see in our passage today. So Paul's been writing to the Corinthians to correct various issues that are causing problems in the church. Right? We've seen a number of them. And, and immediately preceding the passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, we we read Paul reminding the Corinthians that those whose lives are, are characterized by ongoing, unrepentant sin would not inherit the kingdom of God. And he ended by reminding them that, that such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And Paul uses that as a, as a bridge to move to address a related issue, right? For the, for the Corinthians, it's not just such were some of you, it's apparently also such are some of you. There's ongoing sexual sin in the Corinthian church, and Paul needs to correct it. But it's, it's not just their behavior that needs correction, Right? It's not just the, the outward manifestation of sin that they need to be corrected for. It's also the, the inward attitude toward life that the sexual sin is, is rooted in. 
Now, this is a, a challenging passage, not necessarily because of what it teaches, but because of how it's structured. One of the commentaries I looked at this week said this is one of the most challenging passages in all of Paul's letters because of the way that Paul kind of weaves in and out at several points in the message. And it appears that, that he's quoting slogans that the Corinthians were using to defend and justify their actions. But there's some debate as to where those quotations begin and end. Paul didn't use uh, quotation marks to, to let us know. The, the Corinthians would know what those slogans are. Paul would know what those slogans are. But we don't. So we have to make our, our, our best guess as to, as to what they are based on the, on the context. So it can be challenging to follow straight through the, the flow of thought in this passage. Uh, but even so, uh, the, the main thrust of what Paul is saying, I think, is, is abundantly clear. So let's read the passage, and then we'll start looking at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Listen, for this is the Word of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. And every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body." Word of the Lord. Everything in this passage falls into basically two categories. Paul is either commenting on what the Corinthians are doing, their conduct, or he's offering his own words of correction. And so, as we, as we look through this passage, we'll look first at what Paul says about the Corinthians' conduct, and then we'll look at his own correction. And, and that's really the, the main point of the passage that Paul is driving at is this principle that he is correcting them from. So, first then, we'll look at the Corinthians' conduct. The, the Corinthians were operating, at least some of the Corinthians, not all of them, but at least some of them are operating with this faulty premise that leads to a sinful practice. And you could summarize it like this, that the Corinthians thought, I am my own master, therefore I can do whatever I want with my own body. So first we'll look at the, the premise. The premise that they're operating from is, I am my own master. It's their basic outlook on life. It's a controlling their practice. 
We see this expressed in, in what's likely the first of three slogans that the Corinthians were, were using and that Paul's repeating back to them to show them why this is, this is foolish reasoning. So look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And so the, the, the slogan, it seems, that the Corinthians were using is, all things are lawful for me. Paul actually references this slogan again in chapter 10 as he corrects them about something else. And so some of the Corinthians are claiming that there's really nothing that's off limits to them. Now, ultimately, this is a deluded claim to self-lordship. It's the Corinthians equivalent to Henley's line, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, it's possible that this attitude was a, a distorted and deformed view of Christian freedom, uh, that the Corinthians had heard Paul preach the gospel, and they heard that they're saved not by their obedience, not by their good words, but purely by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. But then they, they think that that means that they have just a get-out-of-jail-free card. They can go on sinning. So they're saying, Christ has set me free. So now I'm free to do whatever I want and get away with it. Well, it's also possible that this is just the result of the Corinthians being influenced by, by their culture, right? If, the, if this was the prevailing mindset of their neighbors, and since it seems to be the prevailing mindset of sin in general, we would expect that would be the case. This was probably their mindset before they were converted. We shouldn't be surprised that it would still be deeply ingrained in who they are. So, you know, when we, we come to Christ, we are changed, but not changed altogether all at once. So, there's still vestiges of, of the old self that live in us. And it's possible this is just an issue for the Corinthians because it's just native to sin in general. And if that's the case, then that means this is not just an issue for the Corinthians, it's an issue for us as well. In his recent book, uh, You Are Not Your Own, aptly titled, Alan Noble says that, that the fundamental claim of modernity, of, of modern life, is that we are our own and we belong to ourselves. I don't think you have to look around too far before you see that this attitude is rampant in our society, and if we're not careful, also in our own lives. Because remember, Paul is not writing to the Corinthians to critique Corinthian society. He's writing to correct sin in the church. The attitude is not, you Corinthians, watch out because your society is really godless and they all think that they're their own masters. He's saying, you Corinthian Christians are acting this way. Right? He's already told us in 1 Corinthians 5, don't worry about judging those who are outside the church. God's going to take care of that. I'm writing to you because of what's going on inside the church. It's a sobering reminder that, that being a Christian doesn't immunize us to the deceitfulness of sin. Well, however the Corinthians came to this premise, it's evident that it shaped their practice as well. If the premise they're operating with is, I am my own master then it's all too natural for them to have their practice shaped accordingly. I'm my own master, therefore, I can do whatever I want. 
But Paul is here not just dealing with a, a, a general licentiousness, but is also addressing something more specific. I am my own master, therefore I can do whatever I want with my body. Even more specifically, Paul is addressing how this conclusion was working itself out in, in concrete actions in the Corinthians' lives. Evidently, some of the Corinthian Christians were sleeping with prostitutes. Now, Paul doesn't come right out and say that, but there's enough here to read between the lines to, to assume that's what he's addressing. If we look at words that are repeated through this passage, we see he's talking about the body. We see a reference to body or body seven times, then the word immoral or immorality three times. That's very specifically sexual immorality. It's the word porneia. And then twice we read about prostitutes. And, and if in this context the Corinthians were, were not soliciting prostitutes, it would be somewhat odd for him to, to introduce that idea here. So, it's reasonable to assume that that's what was going on. We don't know exactly why, and there's all sorts of suggestions culturally as to why this would have been happening. Was it temple prostitution or sacred prostitution? Was it, uh, was it just secular, kind of normal prostitution? We don't know, but, but it sort of doesn't matter. What matters is they were doing it, and apparently they weren't doing it in secret. That would be bad enough, but evidently they're doing it and they're justifying it openly by using these, these slogans, right? And, and so Paul repeats back what seems to be two more slogans that the Corinthians are using to defend their behavior. And we find that, that their defense of that sin is rooted in a distorted perspective on the body. Look at verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them." Again, there's some debate about exactly where this, this slogan ends, but I think that, that, uh, that whole sentence is one of the Corinthian slogans, right? Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for, is for food, and God will do away with both of them. What do food and the stomach have to do with sleeping with prostitutes? Well, the first part, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, is really just a statement that exposes a very utilitarian view of the body. Food exists to be consumed and the stomach exists to consume. It's that simple. Now, based on Paul's response, but the body is not for immorality, we can guess that sort of underlying the Corinthians' slogan is, uh, is the parallel idea that they were arguing. And, in the same way that food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, you can say that sex is for the body and the body is for sex. They're drawing a correlation between the two. And so, what this is showing us is that the Corinthians were, were effectively arguing that the body was created to be a tool. It's not really part of you. The real you is inside of you. You might be able to see here the link to the perspectives of our own culture. Right? Your body isn't really that important. It's just a tool to satisfy your desires. The real you is, is inside of you. It's the part of you that feels. The real you is, is your psychology, not your biology. And since you are your own master, you can do whatever you want with your body as much as any other tool or possession 
that you have. But then there's a second part to this slogan, and that's this. So food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. And if this is part of the, the Corinthians' defense of their actions, then it's, it's not just that the body is a tool, it's also a temporary disposable tool. This again highlights the, the Corinthians' defective ideas that, that the real you is, is not your body, it's, it's inside of you. The real self is on the inside, the body is just a tool that you use temporarily until you die. This was not just the perspective of non-Christians. Sadly, it's still the perspective of many Christians who think that their real self is just their soul, right? Their body is just their earth suit, and one day they're going to be released from this bodily prison and live free as a pure disembodied soul in heaven. But friends, that's not what the Bible teaches. God created us as a fundamental unity of body and soul. Human beings aren't souls who happen to occupy bodies. We are embodied souls or ensouled bodies. The Lord Jesus Himself took on true humanity, body and soul. He died a, a human death. He was raised to life again bodily, and He ascended into heaven bodily, and He's going to come again bodily, and we will be raised with Him bodily. Our eternal existence in the new heavens and the new earth is a physical, bodily existence. And all of this points to the fact that our bodies are not just temporary tools. Our bodies are a part of who we are. And so, what we do with our bodies matters to God. That's not the way that the Corinthians were conducting themselves, certainly. And it's not the way that our culture in general operates either. Frankly, it also too often characterizes the way that we live as Christians. We operate as if our body is a temporary tool, not an integral part of who we are. We treat our bodies like paper plates or plastic utensils at a picnic. They're just delivery mechanisms for feeding our desires, and it doesn't really matter what we do with them because, well, they're going to end up in the trash anyway. So that's how the, the Corinthians were justifying their actions. They're saying, Paul, we can do whatever we want. We're free in Christ. We're our own masters, so we can do whatever we want, which means we can do whatever we want with our own bodies. Besides, our body isn't the real the real self, the real self is on the inside, and the body's just going to go away anyway. God's going to destroy it. And then they use a, a, another defense, and this is found in verse 18. Verse 18, they say, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. Now, there's disagreement whether or not this is actually one of the Corinthians' slogans, or maybe it's something that Paul is saying. But after studying this week, I've become convinced that this is, this is actually one of the things that Paul is quoting back to the Corinthians. You notice if you have the New American Standard Bible that, that the word other is in italics, which means it's not there in the original language. It's, it's there, put there by the translators to make sense of what's written in Greek. Right, so, the original manuscripts don't have that. So, really, the text just reads, every sin that a man commits is outside the body. 
Now, if this is something that Paul is arguing, it's much harder to see how it fits, which is why the translators add that word other, say this is what Paul must, must mean. But I think it makes more sense to take this as one of the Corinthians' slogans. So, the Corinthians are, are using this to justify their solicitation of prostitutes. It's basically a way of saying that, well, if the body is just a temporary tool, then it's sort of irrelevant what happens with it. And therefore, what you do with your body doesn't really constitute sin. Sin doesn't happen with the body. It happens outside the body. What I do with my own body, that isn't really sin. It can't be. And this would be close to the popular idea that as long as you're not hurting someone else, it doesn't really matter what you do with your own body. It's not sin because ultimately you belong to you. And you can do with you what you want with your own possessions as long as you don't hurt anyone else. It's the Corinthians equivalent of saying, my body, my choice. You can see the connection to our own cultural moment. As long as I'm not hurting anyone else, why do you care what I do with my own body? Why is it such a big deal to you? It's mine. I can do what I want with it. You worry about yourself. Why does it matter if I have casual sex? Why does it matter who I sleep with? Why does it matter if I look at porn? Why does it matter if I go to a prostitute? Why does it matter if I change my gender? Why does it matter if I have an abortion? It's my body. It's just a tool. The real me is inside, so the body doesn't matter. So both for the Corinthians and for our culture, this rejection of biblical sexual ethics is is not merely the result of wanting to be post-traditional or post-Christian or anti-establishment in some way. It's rooted in an understanding of the self, which begins with this fundamental claim of sin. You are your own master. You get to decide what's right for you. And the deep irony here is that while the Corinthians are asserting this supposed autonomy, I'm my own master, they are actually being mastered by their sin. Paul alludes to that in verse 12 as the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me, but Paul says, careful, I will not be mastered by anything. So, in reality, they are not free. They're not masters. They're slaves. Right? Jesus himself says, anyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. And this is the deceitfulness of sin. It tells you that, that you are free apart from God, that if you submit to God, you are a slave, and God is a burdensome taskmaster. But if you reject His Lordship, you can be your own master, and then you'll be truly free. And that's the trick, because it's the lie of freedom that sin uses to enslave you. But if you live by the philosophy, I am my own master, you are in reality just a slave to sin. So that's the Corinthians' conduct. Let's turn and look at what Paul says to correct them. If the Corinthians' conduct could be summarized by the statement, I am my own master, therefore I can do whatever I want with my body, Paul's correction could be summarized in his words in verses 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 
You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Paul offers both a correction to the Corinthians' premise and to their practice. So, we'll start by looking at how he corrects their practice first and then work back to how he corrects that faulty premise. First, he corrects their practice, and he does that. Instead of arguing that I can do whatever I want with my body, Paul uh, issues this sort of overarching instruction. You are to glorify God in your body. Again, in the context, he's addressing this issue of of prostitution, of, of sexual sin. So, his application of this principle takes concrete shape in the command of verse 18. How do you glorify God in your body in this situation? Simple. Flee immorality. Don't justify it. Don't coddle it. Don't get as close to the line as you can without crossing it. Flee it. Run away. Have nothing to do with it. Get as far away as you can from it. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just tell them what to do. He also refutes the arguments that they are using to defend themselves. So, to the claim that the body is just a tool, it's not a part of the real you, look at verse 15. It responds, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Notice that it's, it's not him saying just that Don't you know that you are members of Christ? He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't miss that. If our bodies are members of Christ, that means that the body is not just a convenient tool. It's a part of who we are. And if we are spiritually united to Christ, joined to Him by faith, then, then we are not just our souls inhabiting a body. We're united to Christ with our whole being, body, and soul. Similarly, he says in in verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Here again, note that it's not just you who are a temple of the Holy Spirit, but very specifically your body that is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not that Paul is downplaying the importance of the soul or, or elevating the importance of the physical over the spiritual, but, but because of the, the error that the Corinthians are, are walking into, he's highlighting the fact that it is not just your soul that's united to Christ. It's not just your soul that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is your body as well because that's part of the whole you. Right? If he was highlighting just the importance of the body over the soul, he'd be making the opposite error of the Corinthians. But if we're a unity of body and soul, that means our bodies are united to Christ and temples of the Holy Spirit just as much as our souls are. And all that means that there is no place for just a utilitarian view of the body, one that says your body is not a part of the real you, that the real you is just what's inside. You're created as an embodied soul and an ensouled body, and anything less is just less than human. To the argument that the body is not just a tool but a temporary tool and so ultimately unimportant, Paul 
says in verse 14, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. This foreshadows an issue that, that Paul is going to come to in 1 Corinthians 15. There's apparently some measure of, of misunderstanding about the nature of the resurrection, both Christ's resurrection and the future resurrection of all people at the end of the age. And so, the Corinthians' attitude towards the body was affected accordingly. Paul addresses it more in chapter 15, and there he says to the Corinthians, well, if the dead are not raised, that is, if, if, if those who have died and you, when you die, if you are not raised at the end of the age, the body is temporary and there's no resurrection, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And Paul, Paul says, if, if there's no resurrection, then yeah, the body doesn't matter. But of course, that's, that's not the case. Right? So Paul alludes here to an argument that he's going to make more extensively later. Christ has been raised from the dead, and Christ's resurrection provides both the, the pattern and the assurance of our future resurrection. And if that's the case, if Christ has been raised bodily and will reign eternally bodily, and we will be raised with Him bodily, then our bodies are not just temporary tools. They will be eternal dwelling places, glorified, transformed, no doubt, but no less eternal than our souls. So we cannot regard them as merely disposable to be used for our own pleasure. And then to the argument that because the body is just a tool and is, and is temporary, what happens with it isn't sin, Paul says, because the body is indeed an integral part of who we are, a member of Christ, bound for resurrection, then what happens with it absolutely matters. You see that in some ways in verses 15 to 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that one who joins himself with a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Again, Paul is arguing several different things in, in really packed, tightly packed language here, but the point is this. If you're a Christian and you've been united to Christ because your bodies are members or part of Christ, what you do with your body matters. And it's therefore sinful for you to take your body, which is a part of Christ's body, and give it to a prostitute. You are already spoken for. You belong to the Lord. So, he uses this covenantal language of marriage to highlight this point. And he says, it's just like the two become one flesh. So, to do what the Corinthians are doing is tantamount to spiritual adultery, not to mention the physical adultery that is also probably a part of their solicitation of prostitutes. Or use a different metaphor. You're hijacking a part of Christ's body and using it in a way that is dangerous and damaging to the whole. We have a, we have a word for cells that are hijacked and used against the body. It's called cancer. But Paul calls the Corinthians to reject those ideas and rather glorify God with their bodies. And that brings us to Paul's correction of the Corinthians' premise. Because the Corinthians' actions are not just 
coming out of thin air. They're, they're built on this faulty premise, right? That they are their own masters. And to that, Paul offers this decisive biblical corrective. No, in fact, you are not your own. This is what John Calvin called the sum of the whole Christian life. If the essence of sin is embracing a lie that we can be our own masters, then the essence of the Christian life is found in embracing the truth that we are not our own masters. There's a sense in which this statement is true for both Christians and non-Christians alike, right? We're not our own in an absolute sense. We are dependent. We're created by God in His image, accountable to Him. But Paul's point here is not about, about that per se. He's speaking to Christians, and his idea here is not that you are not your own because God made you. It's that you are not your own because God redeemed you. It's clear from verse 20. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. That's the language of manumission, release from slavery. If you're a Christian, you have been bought with the blood of Christ, set free from slavery to sin at the cost of the death of the Son of God. You are not your own because you have been purchased for God. Yes, it is true. It is gloriously true that, that you have been set free from sin, but this is not an unqualified, absolute freedom to self-lordship. You've been set free from sin in order that you might enter the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, there is only one king, and it's not you. You've been set free to live under the, the benevolent lordship of God, your Redeemer, the way that we were created to. Adam and Eve were not created to be utterly free apart from God. They were created to live under the lordship of God. That's the way that humanity was designed to work. So set free from sin doesn't mean we just get to be our own masters. It means we get to be truly free, which is life under the lordship of God, not utterly independent, but joyfully obedient to Him. For some of you, that might not sit really well. You think, if I can only be free, I can only be free if there's no master over me, right? You'll, you'll only be happy if you're like Henley. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Whether you like it or not, that's not an option. To quote that great theologian Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. You're either a slave to sin or you're a servant of God, but there is no third option. This has specific implications for those of you who, who are here or maybe joining us online who are not followers of Jesus. You can either be a slave to sin all the while convincing yourself that that's true freedom, but, but you will be held responsible to pay for your own debts. It's sort of like being financially independent, right? As a child, you want to be financially independent, free from the tyranny of your parents. And it's really wonderful and, and exciting and thrilling until the bills are due. And you realize that you can't pay. Sin is the deepest debt 
that you can imagine, an infinite one, and in yourself there is no way that you can pay it. And if you do not trust Christ, then there is no comfort for you in life and in death, because whatever supposed autonomy you have will all shrivel up when you stand before Him in judgment and give an account for your sin. So you can live with the illusion that you are your own master and that you have freedom and all the while are a slave, or you can accept the offer that God makes to trust Christ and to belong to Him. If you are purchased by the blood of Christ, then your debts are paid by Him. Your sin is atoned for, your guilt forgiven, and then you belong to Him. But those are the only two options available. And if you're here this morning, you're not trusting in Christ, and that is the choice that I set before you. You can continue in that illusion that you're your own master, or you can come to Jesus for life and salvation. Place yourself under His loving and gracious and compassionate reign and find comfort and hope in the reality that now you belong to Him. This also has implications for those of us who are followers of Jesus. As much as we might criticize and complain about our culture, it's just as easy for us to buy into the lie that we are our own masters, right? We, we maybe don't do it quite as brazenly as the Corinthians, but, but the danger for us is to gradually buy into this idea that what we do with our bodies is really just a matter of indifference, especially when it comes to things that our culture increasingly regards as acceptable, we're celebrated. And so we can become anesthetized to this, this because it's just the air we breathe. The culture preaches that we're our own masters, that we're the, the captains of our soul. And so we just gradually drift into it, begin to act accordingly, sometimes without even realizing it. And so Paul offers us here a corrective to that, biblical smelling salts to wake us up from this trans that sin puts us in. We need to be careful here as well because it can be very tempting for us to be vocally critical of our cultural's, uh, culture's widespread acceptance of, of unbiblical sexual practices and all the while be coddling and justifying our own sexual sin. We whine about our society's normalization and celebration of homosexuality or transgenderism, all the while justifying our own habitual use of pornography and casual hookups. Friends, at the root, these things stem from the same issue, choosing the, the illusion of self-lordship over submission to God. So, if you've been been lured into thinking that what you do behind closed doors with your bodies doesn't matter because, at least practically speaking, you're convinced that you're your own master, so you're free to do whatever you want. And hey, I mean, I got to get out of jail free card. Friends, the journey out of that place of slavery is possible with Christ, but it begins with an admission, a fundamental admission that you are not your own master. Jesus is. Your body is not your own. You are not your own. You belong to Him. And so, we commit 
to use our bodies to glorify God, but we don't do it in order to belong to God. We do it because we already belong to Him. It's not the Lord will, will purchase you if you glorify Him enough with your body. That's not what Paul says at all, right? He says, the Lord bought you through the death of Christ in your place for your sin, and now you belong to Him. Therefore, glorify Him with your body, which is in reality truly His. So William Ernest Henley said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And is that where you are today? Because, friends, there's no comfort, no hope in that life. And the end of that way is death. Or I wonder if you are with Dorothy Day, who, who wrote a poem that's the mirror image of Henley's. Right? Henley's poem was called Invictus, Unconquered. Day's poem was titled simply, Conquered. And this is what she wrote. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since His the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with Him and His the aid, that spite the menace of the years keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We praise you. We worship you and the Lamb who was slain and by whose blood we have been ransomed for God. Father, we we need these words. We need these words to help us to, to examine our own lives, our own hearts. Lord, it is so easy every day in so many ways for us, for me, to, to live practically as if I'm my own master. And so, Lord, I pray that, that these words that you have given for our instruction would pierce our hearts, would find fertile soil and bear fruit. Lord, help us increasingly to live under the lordship of Jesus, to recognize that truth that we are, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We thank you for that, for, for paying what we could never pay with the precious blood of Jesus. And Lord, we trust that you by your Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom we have from God as we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, now will make us increasingly willing and ready to live for him. We 
pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord Jesus, who with His precious blood purchased you for God, bless you and keep you this week. You're dismissed.